This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelore. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Welcome back to the show. It has been a a couple of years since we talked. And in that time, I believe you've had a baby. (laughs) You got married. You got married first. Then you had a baby. Then there was a global pandemic. And somewhere in there, you also birthed the book. Yeah. Has it been that long? Wow. Yeah. We, it's, gosh, it's many years ago then because we are just about to have our fourth wedding anniversary. And then, yeah, pandemic had a baby during the pandemic, wrote a book. My husband also wrote a book during the pandemic. We're like, I don't know if this was a wise decision, but here we are. And now our books are out in the world. So, uh, yeah, a lot has happened. Congratulations, first and foremost. And I'm so curious to know, just on a human level, how how are you? How are you doing with all of that that you've gone through? Like so many really beautiful moments, but I also know as a, a fellow mom and as somebody who started writing a book in the pandemic and then decided, uh-uh, this is not happening right now, <laughs> that, that it's, it's difficult as well. So how are you? I'm good today. Uh, it was definitely a journey. I think the pandemic being a first time mama, and then I started writing about five months postpartum and definitely felt like I was in a bit of a hole. And, you know, like that is sort of what the scenario is when you're writing. And, um, but there were additional layers to it, honestly, you know, existing, doing this, both the literary baby and the human baby, you know, it was really isolating and didn't have a lot of people coming over and spending time and supporting, you know, it was a lot of just us as a unit, as a couple going through it. And we were both writing books, which was It was great because we understood what each other was going through. And when we needed to say, like, I have to keep writing, you know, the other one could really step in. But yeah, it was hard. And uh, there was a period of time where I really felt like, does anybody even know that I'm here? You know, like, does anybody even know that I exist? Right. And now that feels so different. Um, Code is two years old and yeah, the books are out in the world now and we're out and about much more. And so there's a breath of fresh air totally woven into the experience now. But yeah, it was a hard, it was a hard go for sure there for, for some time. I feel like everybody can relate to what you just said, whether they had a baby or wrote a book, it did feel like we all got sucked into a bit of a tunnel, (laughs) spun around, shot back out and people are just sort of 
finding their footing again and, and feeling better again. But I mean, for all of those mamas who had COVID babies and then add on writing a book, which as you said, it's a really inward journey going through that writing process. And especially with the type of stuff that you write about, I can imagine it was bringing stuff up. And I mean, was it actually though? Because you all, you're so tuned in and self-aware already. Did you find the book writing process like stirred up some stuff for you or were you like, no, I've seen all of this before? Yeah. I mean, what it stirred up, what I found interesting about the writing process was writing a book was so different than, because I see clients every day, all day, you know, that's, that's my work. And it was so different writing it than being in therapy with people. And that was where there was an offering for me because I started writing the book from the space of how do I speak to everybody's experience? Like, how do I write a book for people who have been in therapy or know this work and they've been doing this work for decades versus the people who've never been to therapy or maybe who've never considered how their family and growing up in that particular family system or systems, you know, affected them? It's like, oh, shoot, like, how do you write to all of these different people with all of these different stories, with all different levels of awareness and introspection? and also not be able to be in conversation with them. Like when I'm in conversation with people and I say something and it doesn't necessarily land or make sense or, you know, we have a conversation about it, right? It's like there's there's such a different feel to it. And I remember like getting really caught up in, I need to write this book so that it lands for everyone. And that was totally my worthiness wound. I write about that as one of the five uh, core, you know, origin wounds that we have of like, how do I take care of everyone, right? How do I take care of everyone well? Uh, And that, that definitely comes from, you know, my story. And I think when I realized that I was trying to write in such a way where everyone would feel seen and heard and understood in every story, you know, it was like, oh no, that's not what this is about. In fact, if I try to write that way, I'm going to miss the mark in such a big way. When I just write from a place of like, here's the gift that I have to offer, it's going to land for people in the way that it needs to. And so, yeah, there, there was, there were big offerings in the book writing process. Listen, it brought me to my knees. There were, there was one moment where I was like, can I give the advance back? Like, how do I make this go? (laughs) How did you work through that moment when you were, when you were, when you were in that space? Uh, My agents were just like, nope, you can't. (laughs) It was pretty, pretty direct and straightforward. It was like, okay, okay. And listen, I, I didn't really mean it, but it was in these moments where you're just like, this is too much, or this isn't the right chapter of life to be doing this. And I think I had moments of that where it's like my vision and fantasy of writing a book in a cabin somewhere in the woods was not it. I wrote a book and I did not sleep through the night one single night while I wrote the book. You know, it was like, it was just, it just wasn't what I had envisioned for it. And that was just something I had to release and surrender to and accept. Uh, I never left, you know, it was still very early in, you know, the mamahood process and yeah, code wasn't sleeping through the night, uh, ever. And, you know, I could never just get into flow. And so I had to navigate this very differently than I would have liked to. And 
I'm really proud of the book, you know, it's like, and this like incredible thing came out of it, you know? And so I'm glad I stuck with it. Yes. I had those moments where I was like, just make it go away. I don't want to do it anymore. Total human experience with it. And I'm so glad that I, you know, I, I tend to stick with things and I'm glad that I, I stuck with this one too. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you speak a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited Titan deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash raw beauty talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sometimes having that support network that's in place to hold that vision for you that you set out to get to is sometimes we almost have to hand it over to those individuals for a second because the journey gets so hard and painful and dark or uncomfortable, or it rubs those wounds that you were talking about, which is so interesting. And I love that you were like, no, no, just the agents were like, you have to keep going. And I imagine you and Connor probably had a lot of conversations where it's like, I'm stuck. This isn't flowing. This is, this is not, I like can't communicate this in the way that I want to and having one another there to be like, okay, take a break. Oh yeah. Or you need a nap. You like you're exhausted right totally. now and come back to it later was probably so helpful. Yeah. And just like my friends and just the humans in the world where you could kind of laugh about it. There were times where I would write like 9,000 words and feel so happy about a chapter and hand it in to my collaborator. And she'll be like, no, none of it. You got to start over from scratch. And you're like, I'm going to cry. And I'm also going to have to laugh about this because there has to be some humor in this process. And anybody, you know, who has ever written a book and obviously, you know, that's not that many people, but I think anybody who has had that experience, we're just like, this is, yeah, this is what this is. And when you're trying to get to excellence, right? When you're trying to create something that's deeply impactful and meaningful in this world, you know, this is, this is what it looks like. And I think to be able to maneuver that does require you to like pull yourself up out of the like shame, embarrassment, the victim, the like all the things that you want to play around with and like pull your head up, stand back up and like get into it again and keep going. doesn't mean that I'm a failure. doesn't mean that I, what I had to say wasn't good, right? None of that. It's like, you really have to shut down that chatter and that noise and just kind of like step back into the vision and the gift and the goal that you set out to, you know, accomplish and achieve. So 
It was a ride. <laughs> if I, I believe it was a ride. I have no doubt about it. And I think that's what's so incredible when you see these books come to fruition. It's not just somebody writing in a cabin in these romantic Pinterest moments. <laughs> it right. is like highs and lows and sitting, <laughs> editing and back aches and like brain fog and then moments of clarity and bliss. It really is taking you through the whole gamut of human emotion. I'm so, I just want to stay on this for one second. So you're in that place where that voice is like, you're not worthy. Your ideas, like nobody's going to want to read this. You can't figure out who your target market is. And so you said like, you have to push through that. You have to, Mm. you can't listen to that voice. So for you, is that just done through the action of sitting down and writing again? Or maybe it's like going for the workout or doing the speaking engagement or asking for the raise, but is it actually just taking action in the direction that you want your life to go? Or is it different? Like, is there a conversation happening in the mirror or what does that look Mm -hmm. like for you? Yeah, no, it's, it's different than that for me. And it's actually really lined up with the book and, and what I'm teaching in it. Right. So the worthiness piece was about being able to say the right thing for everyone right? Like taking care of everybody's experience. And that is directly linked to my childhood. So just a bit of background for the listener. You know, my parents went through a nine-year divorce process starting when I was in first grade. I'm an only child. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, paranoia, emotional flooding. It was just like high conflict all the time. I was this tiny little human in the system that was crashing and burning around me. And I decided to take on the role of like flying under the radar, pretending like I was unaffected, unbothered by what was going on. I was good. I was fine. I was okay. Like that was, you know, that was what you would hear from me. And I pretended really, really well. You know, it was like, I really gave a good performance with it. And in that though, there was also these moments where I was having to say, there was my own pressure really on myself of saying the right things to both of my parents, wanting to make sure that they were both okay, wanting to make sure that their emotional experiences. I mean, obviously I didn't know what that was at five, but I still could sense that they were not okay. And I wanted to do my best as a kiddo to put less pressure on them or to put less stress on them. And I can remember I share this in the book at one point. I remember, I I don't, I I think I must have been nine or 10 at this point, but I went into the judge's chambers when, during their divorce process and sat me down and he said, Vienna, I'm going to ask you some questions about your parents, but we're going to record what what you say here. And then both of your parents are going to get a copy of it. And I look back on that now and I'm like, wow, gosh, did we miss the mark? Hey, like what a damaging thing to do or, you know, put a child in that type of a position. But I remember him starting to ask me questions like, who do you like living with more? And who, you know, and all of a sudden here's this sweet little nine or 10 year old who's like, well, you know, both of their homes are great. And here's what I like about this one. And here's what I like about that one. Right. It was like this piece of needing to protect everyone and make sure that they were taken care of. And so, no, you know, when you ask me that question, is it just about like head down or look yourself in the mirror and say the right things to yourself or like convince yourself that you're worthy? You know, mine was, the worthiness was in relation to 
am I still good enough as a therapist, as a clinician, you know, as a person in this position, if I can't make every reader feel seen, heard, and understood, if I can't take care of their experience of this book. And that was really familiar to that role as a kiddo. So for me, this work is about being able to link it to the familiar experiences, what I call the origin stories, right? These moments in our life that set the trajectory, right? That set the foundation for the way in which we relate to our worthiness, deservingness, good enoughness, the way that we relate to a sense of belonging, feeling prioritized, trusting people in our lives or feeling safe, having our you know wellness cared for, considered, protected, honored, respected, right? Like these moments in life, whether they're at four, five, six, 14, later on, you know, it's like there are origin stories that set something in motion for the first time. There's positive ones, of course, but we tend to spend a bit more time time with the, you know, more damaging, hurtful, harmful ones that keep us engaging in patterns in our adult lives in these unwanted ways that we can't seem to shake. So yeah, when that part got activated for me, you know, listen, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching this, right? And But I think it's also so important to say that just because here I am the origin person, right, doesn't mean that my origin stories don't get activated still sometimes to this day and that I have to be aware of it. This isn't a an experience of arrival when we talk about healing, right? People say like, you don't just arrive someplace, right? There's no destination. This is a practice, a forever practice, because at different stages, at different chapters in our lives, we will come face to face with things over and over and over again, just in different ways. And that's our continued work. And so in writing this book, it put me face to face with this part that loves to make sure that everybody's okay, that loves to make sure that everybody feels taken care of and seen and heard and understood. And I can do a really good job of that when I'm in conversation with people. But in writing a book that ideally goes to hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people eventually, right? It's like, no, of course I can't speak to everyone's personal experience. And that was the gift is that I have something very important to say. There's a wisdom here that I have been, you know, that I have luckily been able to step into and connect to, and then be able to put out into the world in a way that people like to listen to. Okay. Right. And this was about me allowing that to do its thing, to exist in the world, and then to let other people do with it what they will, what they're available to, and to not stay in that role of the emotional caretaker and the peacekeeper of people's experiences. So yeah, it was a bit more of a complicated journey than just, you know, having a good mantra in the mirror, less complicated in the sense that I know how to do this. And so it was sort of at my fingertips and I was like, oh, there it is again. Hi, nice to see you. <laughs> nice to, you know, nice to meet you again. But I, I, I don't believe that, you know, when we struggle with a wound like that, I don't think that it's mind over matter most of the time. You know, I don't think that that's the way that we reconcile it. In this book, I walk us through, you know, the origin healing practices of how I believe what I've seen both personally and professionally that helps us heal and reconcile the things that are unresolved in our lives. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I can't thank you enough for sharing that piece of your story, what you call, you know, one of your 
uh, family of origin ruptures. You had a beautiful photo on Instagram. It's you as an adult now, and you photoshopped in this little girl of you. And, and it just is so powerful because we all have those, those little versions of ourselves that have gone through things, have seen things, whether it's highly traumatic or it was little traumas or little stresses that have impacted the way that we see ourselves and the beliefs we carry and therefore the actions that we take. And so I really believe that there isn't a more powerful thing that we can do than to explore our origins and the beliefs that we picked up along the way and to really understand which of these is serving me and and which of these is not serving me. Now, here's the tricky part that I've uncovered a bit is that sometimes those beliefs, like for you, I need to make sure that everyone's taken care of and that um, I'm not hurting anybody's feelings and that I'm being a good girl. In many ways, that probably allowed you to succeed in life and makes you an incredible therapist and allows you know people to feel very safe with you. But at the same time, if you don't know how to use that gift that you have or that belief, it can become a huge hindrance. I mean, it can tear you down. It can be that it can dilute you in this world. So I, I'm so curious to know your book, first of all, is a national bestseller. So it did (laughs) incredibly well. It's doing incredibly well. It's called the origins of you. If somebody's like, okay, well, this is interesting. I can see how, you know, that childhood experience that she went to would play out in some ways as an adult. What are some of the common family of origin stories or ruptures that you see as a therapist? Mm -hmm. And let me really quickly speak to what you just said, because one of my colleagues, Dr. Alexandra Solomon says, you know, our, our pain and our gifts are next door neighbors. And I think that rings so true for so many, right? This idea that, well, I wouldn't be who I am today without the story, you know, and, and that is true. Of course it is. It's literally true, right? And I think sometimes it's part of how we minimize or disconnect from the pain, right? Where it's like, well, it shaped me. I wouldn't be here without it. And so I've made something of it. And, you know, to your point, yes, right? It's I wouldn't be as good of a therapist as I am if I hadn't gone through what I went through. I wouldn't be able to remember every detail of every person's story that I come across if I didn't grow up around psychological abuse and manipulation and gaslighting because as a little human, I was tracking all of the things and making sure I was following everything so that I was never you know, taken advantage of or duped, right? And so it's like, yes, of course, there's a gift there. But those gifts can be motivated by our healing. They don't, nec- they don't have to be motivated by the pain. They don't have to be driven by the pain forever and ever. And just because you do healing work doesn't mean that you lose the gift, you know, it doesn't mean that you lose your edge. It doesn't mean that you lose the thing that you gained from the story, right? So I just want to highlight that because I think it's one of the things that people use as a way to, I don't know, like rationalize the pain, you know, rationalize the story, explain it away. And what this work is about is not doing that. What this work is about is naming what is 
period. Put a dot at the end of it. Don't keep speaking. Don't give me the context. Don't give me the story. Don't give me all the other things that are a distraction away from your pain. So, you know, for anybody who has any unwanted patterns in their life today, the ones that you just can't shake, the thing that you're like, I promise I'll never do this thing. No more conflict in this way. I won't keep dating the and pursuing the emotionally unavailable person. I will set the boundary the next time. I promise. You know, it's like all of those things that we can't implement it's pointing you back to your resolution in your life. It's pointing you back to something that is unresolved. I happen to take the, the viewpoint of looking at our family of origin. Obviously, there are many other influences that happen along the way, but I always want to look at our family systems. So, okay. Had to say that though before. <laughs> Just, I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah, I would, I would never have thought to bring that or that that would be a thing, but of course... Of yeah. course, people would be afraid to lose their the sharp edge of the sword in the healing process or or would justify perhaps that, you know, this or that. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to look back. You know, we're scared of opening up Pandora's box. We have relationships with our family today that are in an okay or good enough place and we don't want to mess with them. Somebody's deceased in our family and we don't want to bring something up that we can't have a conversation about or reconcile. We spread the narrative that they did the best that they could with what they had or that they were so much better than the way their parents worded them, right? It's like there are endless stories that take us away from just honoring what our pain is. And that's again, what this work is. And so, oh my gosh, what can it look like? I mean, like endless stories, right? It's like as many humans as there are, right, are are the stories. We have maybe some of the like obvious ones that so many have gone through, like divorces or infidelities, some type of a trust rupture. Um, parents who don't know how to navigate differences with their child, right? And so oftentimes with a belonging wound, there's this emphasis that like, this is how we do things in our family, right? Like this is the way. If you don't act this way, believe this, you know, present this way, then you're on the outside. With a worthiness wound, you know, there this will come if you had the experience of not feeling good enough, if you didn't feel deserving, if your value was associated with particular conditions. So for example, if you like got straight A's or scored the hat trick on the field, like, and that that was the thing that got you love, connection, presence, attention, validation, calm in your family, right? You started to learn that, yeah, the love was conditional based on performance. So if you're a performer, a perfectionist, the people pleaser, the comic relief, right? These are all really common examples of, you know, a worthiness wound that said, okay, you got what you needed when you presented this way. And then you didn't get what you wanted or needed when you were not bringing home the A's or scoring or the comic relief or being the emotional support or care or people pleasing or whatever it is, right? Statements of harm, of course, right? So some people realize that their worthiness is conditional. Others were told that they're not worthy, right? Just explicitly, right? And, and so that's, that ventures both into a worthiness wound as well as a safety wound when it comes to, you know, verbal, emotional, psychological abuse. Yeah. Ruptures in prioritization. So not feeling important enough. Maybe you grew up with a parent who was a workaholic or there were 
other types of addiction in the household. Maybe there was a mental health challenge that took all the focus away. Maybe there was a sibling who had an illness and the parents, the adults in the house were really focused on the sibling and you were sort of forgotten about. Um, conflict in the house becomes the priority over you. After a divorce, a parent's dating, you know, chronically and you are sort of forgotten about. Not every wound has to come from a malintended place though. And I, I always say this here because I share a story in the prioritization chapter of Andre whose mom was a single mom working multiple jobs. She worked double shifts every day, except for Sundays. They would go to church together, have brunch together afterwards. But he loved her, respected her, held her in such high regard and had such a hard time identifying his prioritization wound because it's like she's literally doing everything she possibly can to prioritize my well-being, right? He could really rationalize that she was trying to give him every opportunity under the sun, but it didn't change the fact that he didn't feel prioritized through time spent with her. That's what he wanted, right? Something else was a priority than being able to spend time with him. And of course, those these are heartbreaking circumstances, but it doesn't change the impact, right? It doesn't change the pain, even if there is context, even if we can rationalize what went down, right? And so, yeah, it's really important to know that this pain doesn't always have to come from these people who were abusive or negligent or reckless with us, right? Like sometimes it just comes from, you know, scenarios that play out the way that they play out, even when the adults are really well-intentioned. Um, with a trust wound, I said before, like an affair or, um, you know, parents who gamble away uh, an education fund or take credit cards out in your name or, you know, on a smaller scale, uh, those can sometimes feel big to people. It's just like a parent promising something repeatedly and not following through, right? Or the storyline of, you know, these kind of grandiose remarks of never trust a man or something along those lines, right? Um, and then lastly, the, you know, safety wound is when your well-being is not cared for, considered, respected, protected, honored. We're talking about abuse. We're talking about negligence, recklessness, um, you know, emotional, physical, sexual, psychological, financial, et cetera, et cetera. So really tender parts and, 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 and layers, you know, to our, to the human experience and to our stories. But we're looking at, you know, the things that happened in our history that set the tone, right? That set the framework around the beliefs that we hold about ourselves, about others, about the world at large, you know, that are still ruling our lives today. I love this so much. So the wounds that you mentioned were a trust wound, a wound around belonging, a worthiness wound, a wound around prioritization, and then the safety wound. Did I get mm-hmm. all five of them? You got them okay, all. Yeah. So somebody's listening and they're like, I don't know. I think I grew up like in a pretty normal-ish house. And yeah, like, you know, something happened here or there. Maybe parents argued or there was a moment of financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a wound. What would be some symptoms of a wound that might be kind of normalized in today's society? Yeah. So reactivity is a 
big sign for us. So wherever you get reactive in your life today, that's a great indicator that there's something that's unresolved, right? It's like this arrow that points us back to be like, okay, something's there. And listen, of course, you know, we're not on some wild goose hunt, right? Like you don't have to have the most outrageous story in the world to have wounds. And that's why I use that language too. Obviously we know like trauma gets overused all the time, right? This idea, it's like, no, no, but do we have pain, right? right? Do we have something that left an imprint? Do we have something that impacted us? Some of it is going to be trauma. Some of it is going to be pain. Some of it is going to be wounding, right? And so that's what we are trying to connect to. If you have any reactivity in your life, if there's that sensation in your body, whether the reactivity looks like you exploding and yelling or whether you just feel this deep sensation in your body, even though you might not do anything about it, right? That's a really good indicator that there's something that's unresolved. Blowing things out of proportion, sort of the extension of reactivity, but where you're like, whoa, this does not match what just went down. Also indicator. I love the, if you can give the advice to your friends, but you can't take it. Accountability, you know, right? When you're like, I could, right? Like hands up. I can say the right thing. Don't you dare text your ex back. Don't you dare swipe through Instagram looking at the new, you know, whatever it is. Oh, you should definitely set that boundary. Oh, you should definitely do, right? You've got all the right things to say when it comes to everybody else. But when it comes to you, you find yourself right back in there, all the compassion and grace in the world. But when you can like really just notice like, oh, shoot, I can't implement this. Okay. That's going to point us to unresolved pain. Sabotage. We know that sabotage is self-protective, but it's also the thing that causes a lot of ruptures in our lives. So the places that we uh, sabotage, whether it's in relationships, work, et cetera, and then any, and I said this before, any unwanted dysfunctional patterns that we just keep finding ourselves in, engaging in, whether it's the conflict with a partner or a parent that we can't set down, whether it's the pursuit of emotionally unavailable people or, you know, somebody who always cheats on you or, you know, whatever the storyline might be, the boundary you can't set, the thing that you can't implement, the promise that you make to yourself that you just can't follow through on, right? It's like any unwanted dysfunctional patterns that you see in your life, they will let you know that there's an origin wound present if you're willing to look. So this would be an incredible time to just press pause for a moment. Just one second, okay? Because we can listen to these conversations all day, every day. You can read all the books and you'll get little aha moments or perspective shifts. But where things really start to sink in is when you can take a second to just reflect a little bit deeper. So I would love for you anyone who's listening right now, if you're able to push pause, just think about one or two areas in your life where you're noticing a pattern showing up. So maybe it's that uh, your finances always feel a bit scattered and in disarray, or you're always dating the same guy who is never emotionally available, or you experience mess in your home, like maybe your kids make mess and it activates or triggers something inside you. Like you cannot sit still while that's around you or you find yourself yelling at somebody. Maybe something goes on at work and there's constantly that feeling of anxiety rising up with somebody that you're working with. So all of these are incredible opportunities. They're like little beacons, little signals 
little flag saying, hey, could you pay attention to me? There's something here which perhaps needs a little tending to. Let's talk about the tending to. I mean, people also just need to order the book because in a show like this, we can only get so far and really being able to sit down or to, to listen to, to a book will allow things to just sink in that much deeper. But can you give everyone maybe like one or two practical things that they can take away that would support them in moving forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to remember that our behavior serves something, you know, I think it's so important to move out of the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment when we're like, oh, I keep doing this thing or I promised myself I wouldn't do this. And to really take a step back to understand what the behavior, what the participation is serving. I'll share a really quick story about when I was dating Connor, who is now my husband but it was early on while we were dating and uh, we were having a conflict. I have no clue what the conflict was about, but what I do remember is that I couldn't stop proving my point. I could not stop needing to be right. And I kept going and going and he's like, I got it. I understand, you know, and I'm doubling down and tripling down. He's like, I got it. I understand, you know, and I like could not stop. And I remember, you know, there's, this out-of-body moment where I kind of like come out of myself. I'm looking in. I see myself doing this. I'm like, this is not attractive. This is not becoming. Like, you better like stop talking, you know, and I couldn't. And then afterwards, you know, I'm sitting in my shame, sitting in the embarrassment. I'm wondering if this person is even going to want to be in a relationship with me because this behavior is not okay. But instead of just hanging out in that space, I got curious about what needing to be right serves. And I mentioned it earlier. So if you were paying attention, you might've heard this already, but I grew up with this manipulation and gaslighting around me. And so being right, right, tracking every detail, proving my point, right? That was quite literally tied to my safety. You know, I saw that when my dad engaged in that behavior, it was really crazy making for my mom. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of chaos, like right and wrong. There was paranoia there, right? And like, I was like, that is not a safe environment for me to go into. And so being right was my way of safeguarding myself. I was, it was quite literally how I felt safe in the world. And so when I was engaging in what, again, whatever this conflict was about, I was really hooked into being right. The moment I connected, right, to that origin story, to really understanding what this behavior was trying to protect me from was where there was this grand opening, right? Because this shift from, you know, our origin pain into being a wise, mature, adult, you know, is a big shift that we're all invited to step into. It requires discernment, right? So it's not just like this kind of black or white or all encompassing, express yourself, be open, share everything that you feel. That's the right way to go. No, it's like, that's not the right way to do it. If the person on the other side is going to just attack you and annihilate you, probably good to not express yourself and to turn somewhere else, right? So we need to use discernment, but in using discernment, right? In being able to judge what's happening here, I was able to say, 
no, this person is a really safe person for me. I know that he is not trying to manipulate. He's not trying to take advantage. He's not trying to be deceitful. And that's where I then had to become responsible for myself, right? Because if I were to continue to engage in that type of behavior, it would cause a rupture. It would cause a split. There would be an ending because you cannot just behave however you want and expect people to stay around. But we can't also just change behavior if we're not spending time with the pain that put it there in the first place. Because if you just change behavior, right? If you were to just get on with life and white knuckle your way through it and muscle through, right? It's like we would essentially be abandoning the pain that we've never actually spent enough time with. Because when you're four, five, six, or 14 or 21, you're not sitting down and like, let me witness the pain. Let me honor the grief that's here, right? Like you survive. That's what you do. You survive and you get to the other side. And then we just try to get on with life. But that's problematic because we're not actually connecting to our pain that is saying, hey, I promise I'm not trying to ruin your life and destroy you and like make life a living hell for you. But I am going to keep bringing you into patterns. I've been saying lately that Patterns are pain's way of grabbing our attention. I just like take it in for a second, right? Like patterns are pain's way of grabbing our attention. Not trying to destroy us, but just trying to say, hey, could you turn back around? I promise I will loosen my grip on you, but I can only do that if you spend time with me, right? Because our pain wants to be felt. We don't need to hang out there forever, right? This isn't like a let's go mope and be sad for it. You know, this is a, a very intentional and deliberate practice of I need to be with my pain. I need to witness myself, right? And we don't need to need all the details. I know lots of people don't have, you know, particular memories about things, but it's like we need to still feel the pain, right? What it is that we can connect to. And that witnessing is going to bring us to an authentic expression of our emotion, which is our grief, right? The things that were robbed from us, what we lost, the parts of ourself that we lost, the parts, the, the fantasy of what we hoped for that we lost, right? Like what just wasn't, you know, and that's, that's our work here. And so I know that that was a big arc <laughs> from where I started, but that feels very important to me is like our behavior, your behavior serves something. Your job is to understand what that is, to move away from the guilt and the shame and the blame and the embarrassment and all that stuff. Why do I always do this? And actually come into your curiosity of, okay, what is this protecting? What is this serving? And seeing your patterns as the invitation to spend time with pain that hasn't actually been felt or addressed fully enough from your past. I think this is one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate for therapy, because I'm listening to you talk about this. And I I'm a quite self-aware individual, right? Like I've been faced and dealing with some traumatic situations since I was 16 and went through my eating disorder and was hospitalized for that. And, and so that journey of self-reflection and understanding origin wounds began young for me. Yet at the same time, the wounding and our survival mechanisms can be so strong and cunning that it can be difficult for us to see them ourselves. Like we don't even, in some cases, and I'm going to tell you how I, I found one of mine, 
um, we don't even know that we're doing it. And this is where I think relationships are so important. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, I feel like I have to do the healing work and have to love myself before I enter into a relationship. And for me, that feels like it would almost be impossible to heal on your own without being in relation to others. Because so often, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or you're dating, those things are the most triggering for our wounds. Those point us directly back to the pain points. So Scott and I had been married for um, probably at the time, like five or six years, dating for a few years before that. So we know each other pretty damn well. I had such a wound around financial security that I was certain that he was putting pressure on me to be making more, that he had these expectations. There was a lens over, like I had a pair of glasses on and that is all that I could see was this extreme pressure to survive. It was like, if I can't make this business hit this amount of money that I'm going to have to quit. So anytime he would ask me any question, even if it wasn't about finances, I was hearing it in that way. We went to therapy for the first time. This was a few years ago together. And I went into that therapy session, like <laughs> this therapist is going to tell Scott what's up. He's going to like, let him know what's going on here. And the therapist relayed back to me, Aaron, all I'm seeing is a man who loves you so much, who's very financially secure, who is wanting to support you in feeling the same way, but through some independence as well. But like, there's something going on here for you. <laughs> You're actually the problem. He didn't say it in that, in that way. <laughs> the lens was placed right back on me. And I, I left that session like, no, that is not how this was supposed to go. But with a real gift. Okay. So am I not seeing this situation correctly? And what could be causing that to happen? And when we go back to the family of origin story, Everything that I needed to know was right there. And there I was 35, 36 years later, it was impacting everything that I was doing in so many areas of my life. And I was completely blind to it. So that's why I do think that sometimes having, not sometimes, I mean, as you know, I'm a huge advocate for therapy, but that third party or that second party, if it's just you and the therapist that is there to ask the questions and to give you an unbiased reflection back can be so helpful because they're not coming into it with any agenda themselves. I don't know. That was just a, a situation that I went through personally where there was a wound and I wasn't even really aware of how mm -hmm. deep it cut. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to see what we don't know. You know, it's hard to see what we can't see. And I think, you know, to your, to what we had said before, you know, there was reactivity there. You know, there was a really good sign that there is something unresolved, right? That there is irresolution there. And, you know, that's such a like, prime example of getting curious and yeah, like the humor, right? Where you're like, I'm walking in there and this person's going to say this to my partner and da, 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 da. you know, it's like, oh yeah, like a, this beautifully humbling experience of like, okay, we're dancing in this together, right? And what is getting activated here for me? And, 
yeah, what's my relationship to money or what's the story? How did I grow up? Who related to money in what way? You know, it's like, yeah, what's, what's making money connected to, right? Is it your value? Is it your worth? Is it your good enoughness? You know, it's like, there's so much that is, you know, woven into these conversations. And yeah, it's just a beautiful example of what can happen when we don't shut down to it, when we don't just stay in this linear approach of like, well, stop putting pressure on me, you know? And it's like, that com- the conversation could just end there. It's just stop putting pressure on me and let me figure figure it out myself, period, bam. Or a systemic way of thinking about it, which is like, ooh, what are my origin stories? And what are your origin stories? And what are my past relationships? And what are your past relationships? And what's your history and my history? And how is all of that coming into play here? And I know that that probably sounds like a whole heck of a lot of work to kind of rummage through and consider. But the alternative, (laughs) the alternative is not looking so hot, okay? And so when we start to see ourselves that way, when we start to see other people that way, it's like, it's, it's a gift. It opens so much up instead of just staying like stuck in this closed off way of engaging and, you know, getting into conflict in a particular way and it being a dead end, right? If you want to open up the path, it's going to require you to look at things systemically, to see the systems we grew up in, to see the, the systems that we've lived in relationally, right? and to see how all of that is playing into these moments in life right now. They're there. They're there. I can absolutely say that if I had just said, like, you're putting too much pressure on me, and this is a you problem and not an us thing, and mm-hmm. da, 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 and we hadn't moved forward with it, that it would have caused massive ruptures in the relationship. I would have continued down (laughs) a not so great healthy path with my business. Like the amount of learning that has happened over the last two years and healing of that wound Mm. and the way that that is now reflecting back to me in life is like, I just can't, I can't say enough about this type of work. If it sounds like, Having these conversations and having to think about this stuff is, you know, a bit murky or mucky or it's going to take a long time. This is so much of like what is brilliant and exciting about life is our ability to reflect on what's working, what's not working. How do we shift and change things? How do we shift and change those neural pathways, the conversations that we're having, the little bits of awareness that can impact our life and can move us out of those patterns. Mm -hmm. You know, we may still find ourselves, I still have moments for sure where I get anxious about money or where I move into a fear response around it. Mm -hmm. But I just see so much more with more clarity what's happening. And like you said, you can almost zoom out and look from a different angle. Oh yeah. Okay. This is what you're doing right now. And totally makes sense why that's happening. And we are also choosing a different way. We're also mm-hmm. like going to do our breathing, get into the body. Uh, we're not going to work harder and longer every day. Maybe we actually need to go for a walk or do a meditation or just hang with the kids. Anyways, I, I'm so grateful that you were here, that you have shared your story and this information that this book was birthed. It is a labor of love. And 
I know it's just going to impact and change so many people's lives. So thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Where can everybody find you if they would like more information? Sure. Yeah. So I'm mindful MFT on Instagram. The link in my bio generally has all of the things that I uh, have going on. You can buy the book anywhere that books are sold. Uh, you can go to viennafarin.com for that. Uh, NewYorkCouplesCounseling.com for you know the therapeutic services. Uh, but yeah, all of the all of the offerings are there. My husband and I are doing a couples weekend workshop in June in New York City, which is going to be phenomenal. If you really want to get into like the nuance and the intricacies of relationships, it's not high level stuff. It's like the depth, the depth work. So if you want to come to that in person or we have a virtual offering for that as well, but yeah, you'll find everything in all of those places. Amazing. I will, as always, link to everything below. I'm also going to put together some notes on a PDF for you with um, some of the key takeaways that Vienna has shared today, just in case you want to be able to look back and reflect on on some of those keynotes. It's like a little one-page summary, and it will also include all the links that she's mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app, and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together.